Spider-Man and Daredevil. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Taking you through a classic superhero team-up, Spider-Man and Daredevil, from Marvel Team-Up number 141, cover dated May of 1984, and Shag, this is absolutely the first appearance of the black costume in Marvel (laughs) Team-Up. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But I think it was the third one on the shelves that month in Marvel, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know about the exact uh, week-to-week, but uh, obviously it's not the first because it refers to the first in this very issue. So we know it's a little later, or it's all happening at the same time, probably, you know, scenes. I mean, we're doing this era of Marvel Team-Up because... Of the introduction of the black costume, because that's where you came in. Exactly. And it's not far from where I came in either. Yeah, for me, you know, this was my very first Marvel team-up comic right here. And it was, as you said, because of the black costume debut. Because, uh, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, that was like the tentpole issue, right, for the big release and announcement and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I missed it. I didn't get it. You know, I heard about it. All the kids are talking about it, whatever. But there I am at my local convenience store, and I see this comic, which is, again, an- another version of that debut and i'm like i am totally here i want to be on the ground floor so i bought the comic absolutely loved it loved the whole team of concept went back and bought the previous issue which obviously we covered last time and this was my starting point so yeah i'm super excited to be talking about this and yes i love the black costume yeah i I mean it looks really cool even though spider-man doesn't necessarily like it we'll talk about that (laughs) but first let's preface with a reason or many reasons i don't know why we like the guest character so for you, what's so great about Daredevil? All right, you're going to have to sit back and just take a moment here, because uh, I, I may gush a bit, because Daredevil is my single favorite Marvel oh. Marvel superhero. You know, I love me some X-Men, I love me some Spider-Man, but Daredevil will always be my, my one true love. He's in my top five as well, so... He's in my top eight favorite characters of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of DC in there, but as far as Marvel goes, he definitely is the top Marvel guy. So uh, the issue we're covering today w- would have probably been my first exposure to Daredevil for the most part ever. I mean, I, I saw him for like two seconds in Spider-Man and Amazing Friends and that little cameo. But right. besides that, this is really my first Daredevil exposure. Then as you go further down, I read the Born Again trade paperback because somebody put it in my hands. I don't know. And then I started collecting Daredevil regularly myself in 1989, and I bought a ton of the back issues. I was completely hooked for life, right? I, I even bought the the 1990 like the Toy Biz Daredevil action figure, and I, like I'd keep him in my shirt pocket when I was working at the comic book store. That's how dorky I was, and probably still am. But anyway, so I kept buying Daredevil every single month for 17 years, mm. which is crazy because I, I sat back and thought about this. Like outside of the Justice League, I can't think of a single title or character that I actually bought every month for 17 years. I mean, I love Firestorm longer than that, but. There was no comic to buy for 17 years, you know? So Daredevil was the number one for the longest time. And I still continue to drop in and out. Like, through the Marvel Unlimited app, I still read a bunch. You know, I figure I've read something like, I don't know, 400-plus Daredevil comics total. So you asked why we like the character. I should get to that. I love the character. I love the series. You know, in, in a lot of ways, he's like Marvel's Batman. You know, he's the vigilante in the corrupt city. He doesn't have any, like powers to, to enhance him physically. These comics tend to go all dark and edgy and stuff like that. So, you know, I don't know, maybe my Batman phase gave way to a lifelong Daredevil phase. I don't know. And for me also, I'm like, I'm kind of all or nothing with Daredevil. It's a little weird. Like, I'm very, very passionate about it when I'm reading him. I'm totally into it. But oddly enough, when I'm not thinking about him, I kind of forget about him. You know, it's... Uh, I don't know what that says about me in relationships, but uh, I, I feel kind of guilty for that. <laughs> so some of the things to love, though, is... Uh, I, I, well, I love everything about the character, but I, since I have to quantify, I'll pick two. Uh, I love that he's vulnerable, right? Both physically, because, you know, he's just a regular dude, and emotionally, because he is 
always an emotional wreck. I mean, just a train wreck of emotions. And the second thing I love is the focus on the legal system and justice. Because, you know, Matt is always trying to do the best he can for the innocent people, you know, with his fists in the street, with his brains in the courtroom. And I just love that aspect of the comic. What about you? What, what What's Daredevil mean to you or what do you like about him? Well, I said top five, but it may be top three, maybe top two. You know, it's he's... I, I keep those lists fluid. Basically, I like everything about the character. I like the look. I like the premise. I like the powers. I like the supporting cast. I like the stories. But to name one thing, how about the fact that his perspective is unique among superheroes? Like his heightened senses. Mm. And when that's well used, when they present the a, like a non-visual world in a visual medium, which is hard to do, like issues that focus on that element, those are the ones that tend to be my favorite. So... I like I like Daredevil because no other hero is like this or sees the world or understands the world like this. And you can do a lot of different things, interesting things in the comics medium with that. I think it's a brilliant it was a brilliant concept to begin with that a lot of people have run with. So what you're saying is you really like to watch Ben Affleck in the rain. I sure. <laughs> sure. No yes. Yes, Ben Affleck in the rain. That's fine. That's fine with me. I like that movie. I like both. I like both versions. Me too. Of that movie. I own both versions. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Daredevil's publication history, which will give us a chance to talk about our, some highlights for us. Mm-hmm. Daredevil was created by Stanley and Bill Everett, Woo-hoo. though uh, though apparently the Billy Club was Jack Kirby's idea. Hmm. So he's got a little bit of a Kirby in there. Uh, he first appeared in Daredevil number one, cover dated April of 1964. His yellow and red costume didn't last very long. Artist Wally Wood introduced the red costume in issue 7. So you'd think it was like later than that. No, 7. Relevant to this show, he meets Spider-Man in issue 16. In issues uh, 20 through 50, that's a run by Stan Lee and Gene Colan. My God, right? Like the creative DNA on this character, even in the 60s, you know? Oh, it, it, it just keeps going. This run includes one of Lee's favorite stories of his entire career, number 47 to be exact, in which Matt defends a Vietnam vet from a frame-up in Vietnam, this is in 1968. Jeez. It's not like, oh, let's talk about Vietnam in the 80s right. or even in, in the mid-70s. 1968. So in the 70s, Jerry Conway takes over the character Woo-hoo! with issue 72, and he makes it more sci-fi pulp adventure and moves Daredevil to San Francisco from uh, number 86. Black Widow becomes his co-star. From number 93 to 104, it's even retitled Daredevil and the Black Widow. Uh, Marv Wolfman picks things up from 124. Uh, he returns Daredevil to Hell's Kitchen, and he excuses Black Widow. He introduced Bullseye, who would become pretty important, you might say. <laughs> Jim Shooter briefly wrote the character before handing him over to Roger McKenzie, uh, who gave it a darker tone and introduced Ben Urich, the reporter who learns Matt's secret identity. And it's halfway through this run that Frank Miller becomes the artist on the series as we head into the 80s. That guy didn't go anywhere. Never did anything with the character. Right. As the (laughs) the story goes, though, uh, Miller didn't like McKenzie's scripts, so editor Denny O'Neill... I mean, just big names, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) So so editor Denny O'Neill fired McKenzie and gave Miller the series to do whatever he wanted, which included a number of retcons pertaining to Daredevil's origin story, his pre-superhero days. He introduced ninjas into the series and characters (laughs) like, well, it's Frank Miller, and characters like Elektra and Stick. He made Spider-Man villain uh, the Kingpin, Daredevil's number one enemy, and so on. For all the great writers and artists on the series to date, this is really where the book becomes a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Miller hands it off to O'Neill himself for a while, but returns to the book two and a half years later 
with David Mazzuccelli oh, in tow. So good. To give us the Born Again storyline. Uh, and this is followed by Anne Nocenti and John Romita Jr. doing a weird and wonderful esoteric take on uh, the Down and Out hero. And would you believe that Nocenti still has the record for the longest run on Daredevil? Like four and a quarter years, and she's still got the record. As I went through this, I tried desperately to prove you wrong, actually. And I, I haven't been able to yet. There's a lot of people that get really close to that. But I, I, I'm going to trust you that you did the math to count up that she's still the longest. That's amazing. So 1987 to 1991. And this is really where I came in. Like, this was my run. But this is where I have to hand it off to you because the 90s, that's your turn. Oh, yeah. And it's my uh, extreme era. So, yeah, I came in actually during the Anacenti and John Romita Jr. era also. So that is so beloved by me. In fact, I used to own a t-shirt. It was a Daredevil t-shirt that was the cover of 259, which like has all these villains. I, I wore it till it literally fell apart. I, I such a love for that era. All right, so going forward from there, right? So Matt and Daredevil, they continue this spiral downwards into some pretty dark and gritty stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this down mainly by long-term writers is how I do this. So 1991, you know, after Nascente and Remita, uh, D.G. Chichester, I think that's how you say his name, I'm not sure, he begins a four-year run. See, four years, not quite as long. And it is very dark. And it is very 1990s. I mean, we're talking... Like, when people look for 1990s examples, these are some of them. Uh, this includes Daredevil's own version of, like, Death of Superman or Nightfall. Uh, that storyline was called Fall from Grace. And the aftermath of that story introduces a, quote-unquote, new Daredevil. Supposed to be a different guy in the suit. It's not. It's still Matt, but he's pretending to be somebody different. And he's harder and edgier, and he's got a cool costume for the 90s. And, you know, this is, like, early Scott McDaniel artwork. And he's drawn this black, red, and chrome Daredevil costume that... Honestly, it looks a little bit like a motocross suit, and that's what it's kind of been known as, is the motocross Daredevil outfit. So there's some interesting stuff in this era, but as with most Daredevil eras, towards the end it descends into some dark, dark, darkity, dark, dark stuff. And, quite frankly, some of it really wasn't very good. Then, after that, we get one glorious year. Oh my gosh, glorious year. 1996-97, Carl Kessel and Carrie Nord. They, mm. Yeah, I heard, yeah, there you go. They try to usher in this new, brighter era for Daredevil, right? Uh, they return some of the fun and the swashbuckling to Daredevil. And for the first time since Frank Miller came on the book, the book is, like, full of joy. Uh, it was truly great. It, it's still very contemporary, though. They weren't, like, dumbing it down. It was still very contemporary. And it ends up, I think, being a roadmap for other writers down the line, which we'll talk about in a minute. Then as we end the 20th century, we drag Matt down and down and down the dark path. Really, really dark with a relaunch of the Daredevil series with a brand new number one. This is the first time they have relaunched the Daredevil series, and we'll have a zillion more after this, but this is the big first one. And it's this is the beginning of a very, very long, long top-selling run of popular writers and artists. This is a streak that went on for something like 10 years of being one of Marvel's most popular books. Uh, started with Kevin Smith writing with Joe Quesada artwork. That right. gave way to Brian Michael Bendis' writing with uh, Alex Maleev's artwork, which then gives way to Ed Brubaker's writing and Michael Lark, so and so on and so on. So it's this huge, unbroken stretch of really intense, dark, mature, uh, and I do mean that genuinely mature Daredevil stories, which are very highly celebrated. Uh, Daredevil's secret identity is made public. He gets married. He goes to jail. In his very traditional Daredevil fashion, his personal life is completely ripped apart to shreds. And uh, again, very celebrated era. Then, after so many dark years, and again, dark, dark, darkity, dark, dark Daredevil stories, this is where Mark Wade comes along and says, you know what? I think that I can take all of those dark stories, not ignore them, but build on them, but make Daredevil fun again. 
and make it a bright, shiny book again. So he brings in these amazing artists like uh, Paolo Rivera and Chris Samney, and they did this Daredevil run that was fantastic for four years. It is fun, it is emotional, it's super heroic, it's often hilarious, and it is truly an amazing take on Daredevil, and it was a much, much needed breath of fresh air. Uh, I will say that I think Mark Wade's run owes a debt of gratitude to that other one I mentioned a minute ago, the 1996 Carl Kessel Carrie Nord run. That's just my take on it. But uh, you know they figured out how to make Daredevil fun again, and, and Mark Wade just you know perfected it. I think. Yeah, it's a great run. A oh. couple runs even because I think they renumber it at some point. I think he yeah he either had two or three ongoings that he was in charge of. Yeah. After that we get this three year run by Charles Soule. Now again Daredevil goes dark. It really does. But I found this run to be very interesting. Matt even has to deal with his new sidekick of a sort, uh, a new character named Blindspot. I enjoy the Charles Soul world quite a bit. And then finally, more recently, uh, Chip Zdarsky, as, I don't know if I said his last name right, but we're going with that. Uh, he's been the primary scribe on Daredevil for a few years now. Uh, in fact, they just relaunched Daredevil with a brand new number one just a couple months ago. Uh, I haven't tried the Zdarsky run myself, but I've heard good things. I, I have a fun footnote real quick i got to share. Just in case you are the one person alive who never put it together. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... Okay, you can finish laughing now. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they are essentially a spinoff of Daredevil. I'm not kidding. Because uh, when young Mac Murdock you know, gets struck in the eyes with those blinding chemicals, if you read Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that same tube of chemicals then spills down into the sewer on four turtles. Seriously, go back and look in the first issue. And if you think about it, you know, Daredevil's teacher is Stick, the turtle's master is Splinter, you know, Daredevil fights the hand, the turtles fight the foot... You know, needless to say, Eastman and Laird were huge uh, Frank Miller fans, big time. Yeah, they're totally connected. I read all the McKenzie through Miller's, you know, return issues from um, a friend. And then I started picking it up with Nascenti. But, you know, I'd read those early issues from just like borrowed from friends. So, you know, I, I come from a little bit earlier. Then I came back for a few issues of Kessel. And then all the, all the Wade stuff. Yeah. But on and off otherwise, I got to say. But since you're now sure to mention TV and movie appearances, <laughs> you know, let me quickly mention a couple that occurred before 1990. I believe the first time I ever saw Daredevil, like you, was in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, where he served as Peter's lawyer, voiced by the legendary Frank Welker. ABC apparently planned a Daredevil animated television series that would have featured a guide dog named Lightning the Superdog. Mark Evanier worked on the series Bible, which is how we know about this. I never heard of this thing until you started talking about this. I'm like, what? And in live action, we got Daredevil in The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, of course. It was played by Rex Smith there. It did not spin off into a series, but there was a pilot ordered for it six years before. In 1983, nothing came of that either. In fact, while the book was Daredevil and the Black Widow in 1975, the rights for that had been optioned for a series based on the duo, with actors shopping it around with photos of themselves dressed as the heroes. That is crazy. Again, something else I had never heard of until this moment. So they tried to make Daredevil be a thing, because he's he's street level, so for television of the era, uh, there was a lot of crime, you know, cop stuff on TV. There's a Doctor Strange pilot. There's, you know, from that era. Oh, yeah. And then the Hulk is the one that made it big yeah. as, a, as a TV series. But Marvel was really trying to, to gain some steam there in the 70s. And this was one of the projects. Well, Stan was always, always had his hand in, you know, it, it, oh, yeah. you know exploiting the property in maybe not the best ways, but definitely trying to get it out there. It's fun to, to see that, like, today... <laughs> of course. <laughs> Superheroes on television all the time. But back then, it was sort of, sort of a niche market, and not everyone you know, knew how to necessarily do it. 
But there were attempts. Daredevil was one. So after that, you know, he appeared in the the 1990s, you know, Spider-Man the Animated Series. He did two episodes of that. I love that show, by the way. It's a great show. Uh, he voiced uh, was voiced by Edward Albert. Uh, in those two episodes, in the, the the way the story worked was J. Jonah Jameson hires Matt Murdock to actually defend Peter Parker when he's framed for industrial espionage by Richard Fisk. They're fun episodes. I watched them not too long ago. It was enjoyable. Then he appears in one episode of the 1990s Fantastic Four cartoon, and he's voiced by Bill uh, Simitrovich. I have not watched those because I think that cartoon's terrible. So Then uh, in 2003, the unthinkable happens. 20th Century Fox releases the big-budget Daredevil movie, which is crazy. It's written and directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, and in the film, Daredevil's a played by Ben Affleck. Yes, we are talking about Batman from the Snyderverse. And Foggy Nelson is played by John Favreau. Yes, we are talking about Happy from Iron Man and Spider-Man. And the Kingpin was played by Michael Clark Duncan, which, yes, is the voice of Kilowog in the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie. So almost everybody in that film has been in further superhero films. Then the big one. You know, the, the, the movie was awesome for Fox, but man, the big one. You know, 2015. You know, Netflix Daredevil TV series launches. Unbelievable. Charlie Cox in the lead role. Vincent D'Onofrio is the Kingpin. You know, we got three seasons, plus Daredevil is a lead in The Defenders. It was glorious. It was absolutely wonderful. Then, of course, they announced the cancellation, right? We lose all the Netflix MCU series. They're canceled. They're forgotten. They're taken off of Netflix. Like, okay, well, it was a fun run. And then Charlie Cox shows up again as Matt Murdock in the 2021 in the cameo in Spider-Man No Way Home that had me squealing in the Mm. theater to the point where my daughter told me to calm down. The same week on TV, Vincent D'Onofrio returned to the MCU in the Hawkeye TV series. So, and now there's a new season in production. Unbelievable. So, and it's insane as it sounds. Like, Daredevil and Matt Murdock are now household names. And maybe that's not weird to you people at home, but for me, someone that's, you know, been following this character religiously since 89... It just blows my mind. You know, my my 82 year old father knows who Matt Murdock is, and so does my wife. That is seriously mainstream now. <laughs> and Daredevil's set to reappear in She-Hulk, like oh yeah, like tonight as we speak, maybe. Well, and, you know, every, it's like every Wednesday we say that. <laughs> yeah, is it going to be tonight? Because it is Wednesday for us now, but it's you know we're like three weeks away from when you're listening to this. If you're listening to the episode when it comes out, they're probably still teasing it at that point. <laughs> um, well, no, She-Hulk will be done, I, I guess, by the time this episode comes out. Okay, let's talk about this issue. Marvel Team Up number 141. You want to talk about the cover first before we even get into the synopsis. I mean... I think we should. Cover art by Art Adams and inked by Mike Mignola. Right, that's why (laughs) we have to talk about it. It's Art Adams and Mike Mignola. Oh my gosh. Two incredible powerhouses in the 80s. And they're right here. Two of the founding members of the legend imprint at Dark Horse later. As well. Yeah, yeah. How's later? You got a purple background. You've got Spider Man in his black costume swinging at you. Behind him is this really cleverly uh, yellow circle. You know, it looks like a sun or whatever. It's just an artistic effect to make the black costume pop more. It's really well done. You know, and on one side behind him is Daredevil, kind of like, whoa, what's going on? And then behind, uh, next to him is Black Widow. On the other side, they're like, whoa, what's going on? And Spider Man's yelling, gangway heroes, this is where the new Spider Man takes over. And he's swinging right at you, and there's guns just peeking over the the sides of the page, pointing at the heroes and knives and things like that. And Spider-Man's clearly here to take charge, and it's like announcing the new costume. It looks great. Oh my gosh, I love this cover so much. This is one of three. Spider-Man is back. Yep. We get to look at three different covers. How does this one rate? Well, okay, so the three covers are this one. You've got Amazing Spider-Man 252, which is, of course, the famous, famous, famous first appearance of Black Costume. You know, it's, it's the reproduction of uh, Amazing Fantasy 15, but with the new costume. Uh, and then you've got Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, which is 
pretty much just got the black cat and, and old school Spider-Man. Like the only place it's revealed on that cover is in the corner box. <laughs> it's like a, he's half yeah. black costume, half red costume. So Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 90 for me is a huge fail as far as the new costume announced. Obviously Amazing Spider-Man is the one that's heralded. I think this one's better. I mean, I realize the nod to Amazing Fantasy 15 is really cool, but I think this cover looks better. I almost give it the win. I mean, I think Amazing is is the one just because it's you know it's a tribute to an iconic cover, but sure. it is iconic in and of itself and well colored and the color is great on it. Yeah, yeah, it's great, and it's the first one, so it you know there's something there. Like obviously, it's not going to be Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man, which is my first issue of that series and, oh. and nearly my first issue of any solo Spider-Man comic. Oh, wow. I no longer have it because I traded it to that guy who lent me his Daredevil comics. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to complete his, like, Spider-Man set or something. He traded it for, like, Son of Ambush Bug number four or something? That's anyway. not bad. That's not bad. I'm a Ambush Bug completist and I missed that one. So, so yeah. So the team-up one, if Daredevil and Black Widow weren't in it, like, if it were a pure Spider-Man cover... Mm-hmm. I would say, yes, I agree with you. But the pose, you know, everything that's Spider-Man and the guns and, like, remove the the, the background characters. And it is it's a super classic, great, great pose for in the black costume. It looks great. I like how they use the little thin white and whitish-blue lines to delineate where the fingers are and stuff like that. It looks great. Mm-hmm. Now, there is, there is a criticism to be made here. You know, Art Adams is, you know, he was sort of the prototype for Lifefield in all of them. And if you look at Daredevil's legs and Black Widow's legs, you can see it. Like, that proportion is way off on their legs. But I don't care. You know, it's like, fine. Who cares? It's, it's fun. It's comics. It's, you know, extreme, whatever. I, I still adore it. Oh, you'll find all these images, obviously, on our gallery post at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Woo! All right. The synopsis. This one's called Blind Justice. It's written by Tom DeFalco and Jim Owsley. Who later goes on to be known as Christopher Priest. Exactly. Uh, with art by Greg LaRocque and Mike Esposito. So there's been a bit of a changing of the guard since last issue. <laughs> you better get used to that on this run of Marvel team-up. Seems to change yes, every but, two issues. <laughs> especially in this case, because it's the same story. It's like a two-part story. And yet, you know, we can't keep the creative team together. Right. Juan Santiago is going down on the charge of murdering a pawnbroker during a blackout. And Matt Murdock, attorney at law, believes him innocent and wants to get him off. Last issue, Black Widow and Spider-Man caught the gang member they suspected of actually killing this man, but it turned out his gun didn't match the murder weapon. This gangbanger, which we nicknamed Little Mohawk, (laughs) uh, but whose real moniker is Cool Breeze... Ours is better. Yeah, I think so. ...says he's innocent, and uh, Matt's inner lie detector confirms it. So what now? Black Widow and Daredevil go out hunting for answers. The Widow finds the gang helping the pawn shop's new owner, Frank Arnold, put things back on the shelves. He claims he bought the place off the pawnbroker's widow and is giving the youth of his community a chance at making reparations. But Natasha suspects he knows more than he's saying. Meanwhile, Daredevil fights another bunch from the same gang and learns the truth about Juan. While he didn't commit the murder, he was a member of the gang, and he was holding out the gang's percentage on stolen goods fenced by that very pawnbroker. The gang got rid of the fence and framed Juan for it. Matt confronts him with it, but still aims to bring the real killer to justice. Uptown, the Kingpin learns that Daredevil is interfering with operations. How is he connected to this? So we're then treated to a news report recapping the return of the mysterious building to Central Park that spews forth all the missing superheroes that disappeared over in Secret Wars. Now this includes Spider-Man now sporting his snazzy new black costume. 
Uh, after getting settled, Peter Parker visits the Daily Bugle, where Ben Urich informs Peter that the whole investigation into the murder of the pawnbroker is back to square one. So Parker suits up in his cool morphing costume and heads over to Nelson and Murdoch to consult with the attorney on the case. Well, it turns out Matt's not there. So Spider-Man ends up engaging in some playful banner with Foggy Nelson. There's some jokes about the new costume. It's a fun scene. Meanwhile, on the streets, Daredevil has done the unthinkable. He has made a deal with the Arranger, one of the Kingpin's men. Black Widow is seriously pissed about this. So uh, the Kingpin's goons confront Frank Arnold, who's the new pawnbroker. Fearing for his life, Frank admits to actually shooting the original pawnbroker. We found the murderer. Unaware, however, of all the motivations in place, Spider-Man decides to leap into action, thinking he needs to protect Frank Arnold from the Kingpin's goons. Daredevil jumps in and says, Whoa, Spider-Man, the Kingpin's men are under my protection. Meanwhile, Frank Arnold's running away when Black Widow catches up with him and convinces him to surrender. Now, it turns out that Daredevil, as I said, made a deal with Kingpin's men. And the reason why is because the fear of the Kingpin's men was the only way they could possibly scare Frank Arnold into confessing to the murder of the previous pawnbroker. So, you know, this way, Matt's innocent client is released by the police and the proper murderer is identified. So Spider-Man, though, he's baffled by Daredevil's choices, and he points out that, you know, the good guys should never be making deals with a kingpin. Now, while Matt knows his client is a shady character, the case against him is dismissed because he was not the murderer. The actual murderer has been identified. But then Matt reminds the client that the gang is still going to be looking for Juan because he was stealing from them. Sorry, kid. Matt's a lawyer, not a bodyguard. Matt feels regret for making the deal with someone as corrupt as the Kingpin just to get imperfect justice for his client. And overhead, Spider-Man swings away after seeing all this, wondering why Daredevil never said anything about his cool new costume. (laughs) Next issue, Spider-Man and Captain Marvel. Oof. All right. What'd you think, buddy? Yeah. Once again, it's like last issue. This has been a uh, Daredevil Black Widow story with Spider-Man kind of attached to it. Yes. It's hilarious, too, because the Secret Wars tie-in, like, Spider-Man comes back and he says to the lizard, you know, Doc Connors, he says, hey, you know, whatever you do, don't talk about what happened in, you know, on Battle World. We can't let anyone know. And the real reason is that is because Secret Wars is only on issue number two at this point. It's got another ten issues to go, and the writer probably hasn't even figured out what's going to happen in the story. No, right, exactly. It's like, we know he comes back with a black costume that has special powers, but that's it. How does that happen? And they got to keep their secrets, you know. It's an interesting way to do a crossover, you know, where everybody goes to it and everybody comes out of it. Right. And then they, and they, things have happened. Yeah, things yeah, cuz I mean they they obviously sat down with the Marvel bullpen and said, "Okay, what do you want change?" You know, John Byrne says, "I'll take She-Hulk or you know or whatever for his team." And right. Spider-Man's people say, "We're going to get a new costume." And you know, what, what and I know this has all been documented. I just don't know it off the top of my head on how all that was rolled out. It's very fascinating. Let's go through the comic a bit bit by bit. All right. I mean, first of all, the credits. Yep. Uh, we have uh, Christopher Priest as Jim Owsley taking over as scripter. The plot is still by Tom DeFalco, but if you look at the credits from the original, it said story by Mantlo and DeFalco. So Mantlo was first, and then DeFalco second, but here DeFalco is first, and I don't know. I don't know how this works or what this means. Well, it could have been that, you know, uh, Mantlo started the plotting of last issue and then handed it off to DeFalco, and DeFalco is just kind of the transition point here. You know, that could be what it's all it was. Greg LaRock replaces Ron Friends on art. The big difference is that uh, the gang of looters... Now wear distinctive jackets with a big red spot in the back. <laughs> Woohoo! They got costumes that we just faced some superheroes. We need costumes. Right, exactly. <laughs> They're working ahead of the uh, brown jacketed Avengers, you know, with the theme. And just to prove that we, we don't read ahead, a uh, little Mohawk <laughs> 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 
had real a real name. He was Howard McNeil, uh, who likes to be called Cool Breeze, who we, who you nicknamed Little Mohawk, but I was very happy to go with it. Uh, so we don't read ahead, folks. This is this is going to happen. So on that page where where we get the reveal, I really like one of the art touches there. You see, Daredevil is he's just list, he's in the room listening during the interrogation. He's not part of the interrogation. He's just there to to listen. But you see uh, on the shadow on the wall behind him. The shadow of, of Matt has little horns. You know, I thought that yes. was a nice touch. It looked pretty cool. There are a lot of nice artistic touches by Greg Lorock. I'll mention them as, as they come. But I think he's doing like, he's putting like a little extra flair in there many times. Mm-hmm. That wasn't apparent in like the earlier issue, but in the Ron Friends issue. Uh, and I like this cop who's doing the interrogation. Yeah. You know, he's just like a hard-edged cop. But it's the thing where he says that you know, he's got a family at home, two dogs and a cat, and they're all waiting for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely reminds me of like a 70s interrogation room. Yeah, from a TV show. Yeah. Definitely. But he keeps bringing up the cat. It's like, my cat's waiting. <laughs> okay. That appeals to Siskoid, clearly. Clearly, but also, I think it's like, this is a, a cliche scene, you know, a cliche interrogation. Like you said, it's been on TV like billions of times. But that's just like, oh, that's a fun little bit of dialogue, right. you know, to, to spruce it up. But of course, Matt is in here reading, lie detecting, you know, so he knows... You know, Natasha and uh, Spider-Man didn't bring the right guy in, after all. It's interesting. I, they don't take the time to explain Daredevil's powers, so they assume you know Daredevil's powers, which I think is pretty cool. Well, remember, this is the first time I ever read about Daredevil. You know, he does say he's monitoring his pulse rate. So, I mean, you do get that much of it. But they don't do the whole typical, you know, hit by a car, blinded, got these powers. You know, the, usually you get in a Marvel comic, they tell you the origin. So I uh, I was happy with this, and it clearly was enough for me to understand it as a kid. If you want to know more, read the comic. In 1984, is a good time to read Daredevil comics. Yes, yes. Like, we get the whole recap, you yep. know, and Ben Urich shows up, and he helps the story along, because as a reporter... The recap makes sense here. One thing I love about Ben, and I always have, Ben's like one of my favorite supporting characters in Daredevil. I think he's great. He can get inside Matt's head. And, and they make a big point of it in this issue. Like, he, Matt is pissed off at Ben a lot, simply because he knows how to push his buttons, and he knows how to read through, you know, Matt's bullcrap. Because he's always lying. I mean, Daredevil's always lying. At this point, very few people know his secret identity, not even Spider-Man. You know, Black Widow's about it at this point. So he lies to everybody. This Ben Yurick is one of the only people that know the truth, and he knows exactly what to say to, to play on Matt's sense of justice. You know, and I love that about Ben. He's like his Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, I guess so. He's like a Jiminy Cricket version of, of uh, Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> yeah, he's a, a, bit, a bit of Alfred, a bit of Commissioner Gordon, yep. kind of mixed in. And then we got Natasha. His Catwoman? I don't know. Let, let's stop. Let's stop doing yes. that. <laughs> yeah, we get Natasha, and she's being driven around. So I had to like check, like, who is this driver who is very protective of her? And uh, this is Ivan. He rescued her as an infant and has been her bodyguard and father figure ever since. And he lived with her and Matt in the San Francisco days. Obviously, an era I have not read. I haven't read it either. So I had no. I, I didn't even give this guy a second thought until you did all this research. I'm like, really? I guess I've read some comics with this guy, and I just didn't pick up on it. Yeah, he gets turned into a cyborg villain in uh, Black Widow: Deadly Origin much later. Oh, it happens. Yeah, Natasha's forced to kill him before he unleashes a nuclear devastation on the world. Sad. It's just a matter of time till that happens to Ryan on our network, right? Well, he's the prime suspect for, yep. for that. And, okay, so she's doing her part of the investigation. She doesn't have super senses, but she does know people. She can read people. And Sp- uh, Daredevil on his own. Uh, I was going to say Spider-Man, but no, he's still not in it. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> so, and then Daredevil fights, I don't know how many goons. 
It's about seven. I'm, I'm counting seven at, at, on one page at a time at most. Uh, which is interesting because then we get the kingpin scene, and he's also beating up a bunch of guys mm-hmm. at the same time. So that's a nice little mirror. The kingpin scene's interesting to me because in the scene, he's fighting these guys, right? Their job is to come to him and attack. They're his employees. When somebody mentions Daredevil, he gets overly angry and breaks a guy's hand. But he gets, like, super nice, and he's like, oh, you know, that was unfortunate. I never injure anyone. Please see that he is well taken care of and pay him double his rate for the time he must now spend at home healing. Like, wow, that's that's the kind of boss you actually want. You know, it's very – because I think the honorable criminal, that, that concept of the honorable criminal, is always more fascinating than just the, the, the evil guy. So, I, you know, it makes him an interesting character. But we're always mocking the, you know, the villain who kills henchmen. Mm-hmm. To prove a point or just for fun? Yep. It's like, who would work for this person? Yep. Who works for the Joker? Why would you? Poor Bob in the movie. Yeah, exactly. But like the Kingpin, he's a businessman first. These are employees, these ninjas, Kung Fu masters. They're not just henchmen. They're actually employees. And I wonder what this does to their medical plan. <laughs> I don't know, workman's comp, you know? It's like, so I wouldn't want to have this job. It's good that the Kingpin takes care of his people. Exactly. What's interesting in the caption here is that it says that the 62nd floor is only for this. This is the one purpose of this whole floor. Maybe it's like a maze of... He keeps fit in different ways within this this place. I don't know. It may just be hyperbole. (laughs) And back to... And this is one of the artistic elements that I like. Back to the uh, interrogation room. Matt is talking to Juan and confronting him with, well, you were part of the gang all along, so you lied to me, or you kept information from me, like I went back and read the first issue Mm -hmm. to see if he ever lied because Matt Murdock can tell if you're lying, but he never said anything that was not true. He just didn't tell the whole truth. Okay, that's clever. Especially with changing writers, that's good. What I like here is that, I don't know if it's Greg LaRock brought this with the Marvel method it's quite possible, or if it's in the script, but the, the idea that Juan is making a castle of cards and then he smashes it as everything comes tumbling down. I'm going to go to to jail for this. After all, you know, he breaks the the castle down. Mm -hmm. So this is a nice... It could just be a scene of two guys talking, but it makes it more dynamic, makes it more interesting visually. Oh, yeah. It's it's very visually uh, interesting. It demonstrates a point in the story, and it looks great when the cards are coming at you, when they're flying at you. But the, the dialogue uses the phrase, life is freaked up. Like, I know what you're... I know what you want to say, right, <laughs> Christopher Priest, that you can't say in this comic, but I'm not sure you can say freaked up. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to... It's silly. He did. I felt it was silly. He did. And then Daredevil and, and Natasha compare notes, and this is another bit that I like about the art. <laughs> compare notes. That's not code for having sex. They, they literally compare notes. <laughs> no, they actually compare notes. We don't know if... No, they're not having sex at this point. Right. They're broken up. Yeah, what I like about the art is that it, this, again, this could have just been two people talking... A very boring scene. But they have Natasha doing stretches. Yeah, yeah. And you think, well, yes, she's very limber. And again, this is not a sex joke. These people stretch. These people get ready to go into action. And we never see that. Right. I mean, if they're going to be doing acrobatics for like, you know, four or five hours straight, they need to. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. They caught my attention, too. Another thing caught my attention is her suit, just like last issue, is blue again. Uh, yes. It's dark blue rather than gray. It should be gray at this point. But it looks like they're trying to mirror her classic suit. But either way, I, I love the short hair. I love this look. Finally, Spider-Man's in it. Woohoo! He's come back from the... Well, he's come back at some point before this because I think this is pretty clever that we have the account of his returning and it's not just like a, like a repeat. You know, there's a reporter talking to an eyewitness who is in that issue of Amazing. I checked. 
He really sees it. This happened to him for real. Well, it's cute because there's some unreliable narrator bits in there, which are funny because, you know, he's saying, you know, certain things and it was clearly from the images. It's not really what happened. So it, that's fun. And uh, yeah, it's a very clever way to, to do that recap because it's subtly different. You know, it's nice. And, uh, you know, from there... Because you get the rounded corners. And then, you know, we catch up with Spider-Man. And uh, beyond that, you know, I, I do like how they introduce... Because it's all about the new suit, right? You know, they, they slowly introduce all the new attributes of the suit throughout the issue. Which is, I think, is pretty well done. I don't know what the reporters... I mean, okay, it's TV. You know, this is 1984. Mm -hmm. We don't have continuous news. We do have news programs and there may be live elements. I mean, the whole thing where he starts... And then the Avengers shows up. I'm sorry we don't have any time for that. <laughs> Yeah, the Avengers are back to it. We don't care. It's a funny gag because it's not an Avengers book. I, it totally works for me. Also, Spider-Man's lost his civvies. Yep. I don't know how long he they were away. Uh, I think it was supposed to be like two weeks, if I remember right. Okay. So two weeks later, his clothes have fallen out of the tree. People have stolen them at Central Park. What's left has been turned into a nest <laughs> for a bird. This is from Amazing. This was an Amazing. Oh, was so. it? Okay. Because th this is not rounded corners. So this is so this is interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's happening... In the moment, right? Uh, so now we've caught up. So in other words, if this is not rounded corners, they're doing the interview while Spider-Man is up a tree. <laughs> so they got there fast and he's been looking for his clothes a while. I guess so. And the whole time he's here trying to protect Doc Connors, which is great. You know, he's like specifically saying, let's keep your picture out of the news. And this is also where we get the whole, you know, shh, you know, make sure not to tell anyone. We can't tell anyone what happened to us. You know, again, because they don't have it figured out yet. And we got 10 more months of Secret Wars comics. And then the next day, Peter Parker... Super happy to be home. Walks into the Daily Bugle. He's singing. Okay. At first, I thought I didn't think much of the fact that he was singing, whistling, you know, as he walked into the office. But in those three panels, which seem to be, you know, one moment to the next, he's singing three different songs. <laughs> I wasn't even sure if they were real songs. So he's talking about like Dead Dog Rover. I'm like, oh gosh. <laughs> My Dead Dog Rover by Ian Whitcomb. Okay. It's a British comedy song. I, I didn't really know it. It's, it's got explicit lyrics. Okay. Spider-Man obviously doesn't get to them, but because he switches to Glenn Campbell's Gentle on My Mind, but he's changed the words a bit. Okay. And then finally, it's uh, Robert Goulet's You Light Up My Wife, which is a parody of You Light Up My Life. Oh, see, I thought he just couldn't remember. I, like, I thought he just didn't know the words, so he was making them up as he went along, is what I thought. No, they're real things that you can okay. listen to on YouTube and everything, all of which makes him a dork. <laughs> Well, clearly think, it makes Christopher Priest of Dork for knowing this stuff, which is great. Well, it's 1984, and all these songs are like late 60s, so he's kind of showing his own culture, probably, you know, musical culture. Spider-Man obviously was active in the 60s, so why not? But, <laughs> but, you know, that's not supposed to be his age. He meets up with Ben Urich, he learns that the plot is, has not been... He thought he'd found the killer, he did not. So uh, that sends him back on the mission, and we see him... You know, turn into the black costume. So if you're only reading this, oh, this isn't like a normal costume. Right. Well, this is, again, I, I, mean, I referenced it earlier. This is where they, they slowly dole out all the abilities through the issue. And here's a great example. You get four panels of the, his street clothes literally transmogrifying into the black Spider-Man costume. Because it's not just changing colors. I mean, he has a jacket on and then the, the shape of the jacket is gone. So clearly the jacket was part of the costume and changes or, or, or is compressed against his body or something because there's no jacket outline when he's in the black costume. You know, the, no. the clothes have genuinely transmogrified. It's goop. Yep. Symbiotic almost. And we haven't read the Secret Wars issue where he gets the costume either. Like No one has. Right. Here's another reference that I had to look up. Peter doesn't think the new suit is stylish. But I think it really is. Oh, yeah. It's super slick looking. And he says Bill Blass. He talks about Bill Blass wouldn't have, you know, lose sleep over it or something. Mm -hmm. Bill Blass, 
is an American fashion designer credited with the relaxed but elegant look that typified American ready-to-wear fashions in the late 20th century. So, isn't the new costume comfortable, elegant, and ready-to-wear? Oh, it's super slick. And, and I, I caught the Bill Blast reference immediately. Like, I didn't, know, oh, yeah? I didn't know specifically what he was responsible for, but I remember he was, you know, a, a big name in the fashion world. I absolutely knew that, yeah. For Peter, where does he come up with this stuff? Maybe, you know, maybe it's a talking point he heard from Gwen or from Mary Jane at some point. Could have been, you know, at the newspaper, too. Uh, as well. He could have covered a fashion shoot. Mm-hmm. Visits with Daredevil's supporting cast, who don't think much of the costume, don't recognize them. <laughs> I thought this scene was funny. I enjoyed this scene. I thought it was cute. And uh, I, I, had, I had fun with it. Like, it is Spider-Man because of the eyes. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, you can't say, well, it's oh maybe it's a different guy. Well, he's also got a giant spider on his chest, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, today we might say, I don't know who this guy is, because there's been several Spider-Men. That's true. Yeah. The Spider-Clones, yep. Kane, and everybody. So oh, yeah. maybe it's the Scarlet Spider. Maybe it's like, maybe there's a new guy. He's a Black Spider or something. But at this point, the silhouette is pretty, you know, obvious. Mm-hmm. But it's part of Peter's woes in this issue that you know, nobody really comments or likes the new costume or... Right. The, the dumb joke I like is Spider-Man says, like, who else can stick to the walls like this? And Foggy's like, uh, the Black Widow, the Fly, the Beetle. He's, like, rattling off all these other characters. I think, anyway, it makes me laugh. Yeah, no, it's fun. Now we've got, like, Spider-Man kind of shadowing the looters. He's trying to, like, he's investigating on his own end. But, meanwhile, Daredevil is talking to the Arranger and making a deal with Kingpin. What do you think about this? Okay, so I had to think long and hard about this because, you know, it's kind of the crux of the story, really, to me at least. And I can see this working out the way it did here because, you know, at this point we haven't got to Born Again. Now, well, while the Kingpin really is a villain for Matt at this point, Born Again changes that. I mean, takes it oh, to yeah. the next level. So we're still about two years from Born Again. So I can see Matt making this arrangement. And in this case, you know, the Kingpin's people came to him. So really, Matt's just taking advantage of the opportunity that came his way. And if you look at comic books, I mean, there's a million op- examples of, like, Superman teaming up with Lex Luthor for the common good. It's, and, and this is just an example of Matt's devotion, right, to the purity of law rather than the purity of justice. Because, you know, in this country, the, uh, my family has a, has a friend who was a federal judge, and he used to always say in this country, uh, we don't have justice, we have law. And that's Matt's perspective. He has to focus on law, at least at, at least as Matt Murdock. And as Matt Murdock, he can't let his client get convicted of murder because he knows he's not a murderer. Even though Juan is sleazy, he knows Juan's not a murderer, so he can't let him get convicted. Okay, yeah. I think it's like it's part of the gray world, the gray zone that Daredevil lives mm-hmm. in. It fits his character totally. And later on, Spider-Man will call him out on yep. it. I mean, the question we get is, is, is Daredevil really ethically compromised? And I don't think so. I think Daredevil is doing the best he can with the situation that he has, and he gets a good result. And even Spider-Man agrees with that later, that it is a good result. I just think it's it's a little more um, legal maneuvering than Peter Parker really can wrap his head around. Right. You know? And there's also the fact that he doesn't know that Daredevil's Peter Parker... I mean, sorry, uh, Matt Murdock. Yeah, it's yeah. Matt Murdock. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's right around the corner. You know, it's very soon, within the next year, I think, if I remember right, but it's not here yet. So that he's missing a piece of the puzzle. Daredevil is essentially working with Matt Murdock. Right. How about that reveal that it is Arnold who is the, the actual killer? The, the whole plot with the pawnbroker. It resolves really quickly, but because it needs to. They, we really need to get the action and the conflict between Matt Murdock and Peter Parker about, you know, the, that Matt made the deal. So it happens super fast. I, I think it's sort of funny that, you know... Uh, 
Spider-Man swoops in to protect him, so he just lets the new pawnbroker, uh, Frank, is that his name? Uh, yeah, Frank Arnold. Let's Frank wander away, right? Because, you know, it's like, oh, get to safety, buddy. But he's the bad guy here. So, you know, what would have happened if Black Widow wasn't there to catch him? Or, you know, what if Kingpin's guys just whipped out a gun and shot him? You know, like, you know, would they have turned him over to the cops? I don't, I don't know what would have happened if Black Widow wasn't there to grab him. Yeah, I think Kingpin probably, the deal was that Daredevil didn't make a deal that you can shoot the guy. Sure, but are they going to honor the deal they made with him? Do they really care? We don't know. Or if the situation goes out of control, like they see Frank Arnold running, do they shoot him in the back, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than let him slip away? So Spider-Man jumps to conclusions, almost makes them lose the game, the whole game. Mm -hmm. You were not in the crossover from the beginning. You were not in the team up from the beginning. So... I really like that moment, though, where Spider-Man calls him out to say, I don't know about you, Daredevil, but for a guy as straight as you, that was a really strange thing to do in the name of justice. I guess you felt you didn't have much of a choice, but going to the kingpin, we're supposed to be the good guys, remember? Like, that's really powerful. That really, to me, feels like that's the whole crux of the issue, just those two panels. Maybe I'm seeing more than I should because I'm such a Daredevil fan, but I really feel like that morally questionable decision hangs heavy over this whole thing. That shook him. Yep. You know, he's he's thinking about those words. It's like, yeah, maybe I did cross a line. Now, there's an interesting thing here. So Matt, again, his strict adherence to law forces him to make sure Juan gets off, right? Mm. But he tells Juan, he goes, hey, you're free. You're going on the street, but your ex-gang is still going to be there looking for you because you crossed him. You stole from him. Uh, you probably would have been safer in jail. So, I mean, here he is defending the guy, but then basically saying, you know what, buddy? You're still going to get it. And Matt's perfectly okay with that. So J. David Weeder, who's a friend of ours, a podcaster, he hosted a podcast called Dave's Daredevil Podcast for years. And he used to have this term he called sneaky lawyer trick. He always talked about Daredevil had sneaky lawyer trick. And this is it. Because, you know, Matt has earned this client his freedom, but he knows full well that client's still going to face justice on the street from the old gang. So Matt has been has been faithful to his own dedication to the law. As a lawyer, he's been faithful to that. The sneaky lawyer trick is that he knows the guy's going to get it. So so I think this is a, a very, like a more complicated, complex story than most. You know, it's not just about get, getting the bad guy and putting him in jail. There's just shades of different people getting their, their the justice done different ways. Yep. Another example of Daredevil operating in a corrupt city. And I, and I honestly, I genuinely laughed out loud at the joke at the end when Spider-Man says, you know, I wonder why Daredevil didn't say anything about my new suit. I like, it took me a second and then I genuinely laughed. So I guess the little Venom doesn't throw off a vibe or something. Uh, at this point, did they even, have they even thought of that? <laughs> I don't even know. No, maybe not. <laughs> but does the costume not smell? Does it smell normal? I, you know, it's like, because that is how he sees the world, right? right. With other senses. Spider-Man here doesn't know his identity, so he doesn't know Daredevil is blind. Right. To Daredevil, a Spider-Man silhouette is equivalent to another Spider-Man silhouette. Right. <laughs> we got to mention that Webzingers this month, the letters page, has a letter from Stan Lee. Oh my gosh, it does. So uh, he says, hey, Bob, who's the editor, Ant May versus Galactus. That's the, the letter. It's about that one. <laughs> That crazy uh, assistant editor's month right. issue. Anime versus Galactus was a doozy. Golden oldie, knock me out. If her figure is really all that sexy, look out, Red Sonya. No wonder Doc Ock once dated her. Toss a couple of no prizes at Michael and Greg. Loved it. <laughs> That's incredible. Like, can you imagine getting a letter from the boss and be like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Gotta print that one. 
All right. Who fared better? Our usual debate on various topics. First, how well does this fit their stories? Is this a Daredevil story or a Spider-Man story? I think this one's pretty obvious. Yeah, we, we've already answered this. It is clearly a Daredevil story. You've got the courtroom drama. You've got the kingpin. You know, Matt's clients at the crux of it. There's no question about it. It's all about the hornhead. Let's get into cool moves then. Spider-Man's. I think there's a subtle one that we didn't talk about. Okay. But the, the, the black costume. Yeah. Does it have a, like a stealth capability? I, I feel like that's suggested. There's a lot of Spider-Man in the shadows or even at the end where, like you know, he's stuck on a building. He's on a little gargoyle or something and looking down at Matt and Natasha and the courthouse and nobody notices him but if he were in red and blue it's like oh spider-man's right there on that building but in black he's not it's like tracking villains and that kind of feels like it's a new capability because of the suit Hmm. so i thought that was cool in an understated kind of subtle way i thought about that but that's a good point yeah for me i he's only in half the issue right so it's a little hard but like uh i picked two quick things one was protecting doc connors because like you know, Spider-Man really seems keen on protecting him, you know, from the press and also from, like, seeing harm. And, you know, and I know Peter respects Dr. Connors, of course, but, you know, he's also, half the time, he's the lizard and he's trying to kill Peter. So it seems kind of nice of Peter to do that. Uh, the second choice would have been, I really like the point where he calls out Daredevil for working with the Kingpin. You know, he says, hey, you know, good guy shouldn't do that. So that's that's probably the one I should have led with as, as the cool move for Spider-Man. It's like, I've been gone two weeks and what has happened to this city? <laughs> Then for uh, Daredevil, it was the sneaky lawyer trick. That's uh, He orchestrates the whole deal with Kingpin to ensure that his client is not convicted unfairly. However, he plans to let his client take the heat from his old gang that he double-crossed, you know. Thus, he has managed to ensure the legal judgment is made accurately and fairly, and yet he also upholds his own personal vigilante sense of justice. So, it's the sneaky lawyer trick. Thank you. Uh, copyright, J. David Weider. And I totally agree with both of you, you and David, <laughs> on this. That is... Daredevil's cool move. All right. What about dumb or weird moves? <laughs> this is such a weird category. <laughs> I know, but it depends on the uh, on the actual title. Uh, and this one, I think, Spider-Man's dumb move is is trying to make people react to his new costume. It's a fun gag. Mm-hmm. It's also, also like, okay, Peter, how much validation do you need? <laughs> <laughs> it is very needy. It is very needy. <laughs> uh, my dumb Spider-Man move was n- not appearing in the first half of his own comic book. <laughs> Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> right, yeah. How about, about Daredevil? It was a little more obvious here. In Daredevil, for me, his dumb or weird move was, you know, the deal with Kingpin, we talked about, the, here's the flip side of it. Like, it, you know, it worked out. So, But he took a lot on faith there. You know, what if the Arrangers guys, you know, made that deal, but then simply, like, whip out a gun and kill the pawnbroker right away, right? Like, Daredevil would have been responsible for letting that happen. Uh, he, he took a lot of trust in Kingpin's men that they'd follow their agreement. So that, that was kind of the dumb move I felt like. I'll do a thing like you did for Spider-Man and say letting Black Widow be cooler than him in his spotlight issue. <laughs> I feel like she did more cool stuff in here, you know, had cool lines or whatever than in her own issue last time. So. Right, she didn't get to do a lot last time, so they're making up for it, yeah. That brings us to the friendly farewell, because it is a team of tradition. I'm about ready to call this one the unfriendly farewell. <laughs> Uh, like I, that's what I do with the thing, right? right. You know, in Marvel two and one, like maybe friendly farewells or the DC books end on a friendly farewell, but the Marvel books don't. I don't know. I, well, a few more issues, I think we'll find out. Because here, like their last interaction is very like Spider Man's very judgmental, and and maybe he's right, but it's like you know, it ends on a confrontation. Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's not friendly, but 
it, it does leave you as the reader, you know, with Daredevil feeling that he needs to rethink his choices, you know, in the reader, it's a very impactful. So, you know, it, it definitely had an impact on Daredevil because he's thinking, you know, did I make the wrong choice? So I, you know, maybe you just call it the farewell. That way you can go either way. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we'll take a break for a couple of promos and we'll be back with our special features. Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. Planet Earth, after the disaster. Animals rule and humans obey. Until Commander, last lawyer on Earth, comes to their rescue in this first litigious issue. Watch Commander as he jumps through every loophole to prevent the very slavery of man. Ponder as he uses the power of jurisprudence to convince the Frog and Tiger Men. Marvel at his willingness to defend boxer Ben Urich in his first case ripped from the future's headlines. Justice is blind no longer in Commander, Last Lawyer on Earth. Available only from the Arizona State Amalgam Law Review. We're back and we're caught in the web. <laughs> uh, this is the feature where we discuss some of our favorite interactions between Spider-Man and his guest outside of the comic we just featured. So Shag. What did you pick to discuss between these two across their entire history? I'll give you a little inside baseball here. When Siskoid first approached me about this new format for Marvel Team-Up, he said, you know, what, what kind of segment should we have that would be unique to Marvel Team-Up, which we ultimately came up with Caught in the Web. The whole reason I suggested this was literally for this moment, because I wanted to talk about two Daredevil Spider-Man team-ups. Everything that we ever do is the fault of this moment right here. So, uh, And let me stress, and this is one of the things I made very clear with with, with you, was I said it's about our favorite team-ups, not the best team-ups. So that's very important here. Because I unapologetically love 1990s comics. I really do. And in some cases, I love some really, really bad 90s comics. Because both Spider-Man and Daredevil had... They had a lot of ups and downs back then in that decade, if you recall. And two particular team-ups from that era that bring me joy, they're somewhat thematically similar too, they both made it on Comic Book Resources' top five worst Daredevil Spider-Man team-up lists. So, uh, wow. Now, your trust in CBR you know, may not be as much sure, as other yeah. people. So. The thematic thing for both of these team-ups is that it's a Spider-Man and Daredevil team-up where somebody else is in one of the suits. So, like, Amazing Spider-Man 396, 
it's Peter Parker as Spider-Man, and he's teaming up with this new mysterious Daredevil. You know, it's it's the Black Motocross costume, and, and somebody who's claiming not to be Matt Murdock. Now, okay, it really is Matt Murdock, but he's claiming not to be. He's trying to act different. So it's like Sp- Spider-Man teaming up with a new Daredevil. And then the flip of that is Daredevil 354, which is where Matt Murdock, who's Daredevil, teams up with the Ben Riley Spider-Man. I like both of these issues, and they were thematically similar. They kind of remind me on the DC side. Like there's an issue where Superman, he was Clark Kent, has to team up with the Azrael version of Batman, and he doesn't know it's Azrael in the costume. He's like, boy, Batman, you know, Bruce has gone through a lot of changes, you know, that kind of thing. So, Amazing Spider-Man 396, as I mentioned, is written by J.M. DeMatteis and Mark Bagley. Talk about, you mentioned earlier, you know, pedigree of books. That's great, right? Creator pedigree is amazing. Still part of the Clone Saga, though. So it's not amazing. But it's also part three of this Back from the Edge storyline featuring the Owl and the Vulture. But for me, what I loved about it is there's this plot where Peter Parker is badgering, just badgering this new Daredevil. Asking him, Daredevil, how did you reinvent yourself? You know, because uh, Spider-Man wants to do the same. Literally, uh, he wants to bury Peter Parker. He wants to start over, basically. Uh, and now, Peter is completely confident that it's Matt under the mask. Matt, Daredevil will not admit it, but that's kind of a thing that goes throughout the issue. And then the other one is Daredevil 354, just Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord. And it's another great creator pedigree. You know, it's, uh, again, Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord. You and I have both cheerleaded this uh, this run a few times now. So in the plot in this one is Daredevil's confronted, uh, is confronting, I'm sorry, the new Spider-Man. Because he realizes, hey, that's not Peter Parker under the costume. You know, what's going on here? So they have it out. It's it's actually quite a lot of fun. They fight this ridiculous bad guy named Shooter, who I assume is a bit of a play on a Jim hmm. Shooter, probably. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's funny. Like, Shooter says, you know, I want to take out... Daredevil, the guy who took down the Kingpin. And Spider-Man, you know, Ben Riley Spider-Man's always like, hey, he was my villain first. You know, like, they're actually fighting over who Shooter should attack. It's kind of cute. So anyway, not the best team-ups, but they bring me a lot of joy. And I think mine are in the similar vein for, you know, there, there are a lot of similarities. I wanted to pay tribute to the Mark Wade uh, run Woo-hoo. on this character. I've chosen 2013's Daredevil number 22 where it's actually the superior Spider-Man. Uh-huh. It still counts because, I mean, you use Ben Riley. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since Doc Ock is in Peter's noggin, he's trying to play the ruthless hero, he tries to apprehend Daredevil for being a public menace, then Stiltman shows up and they, <laughs> they have to team up. First of all, I love this, you know, the Chris Samney art. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Like I said, Wade describes the way Daredevil interprets the world around him. Which is what I love about Daredevil comics. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, they play with the radar sense and with the other senses. And it also uses one of Daredevil's goofiest villains and makes him a serious threat. Like, they upgrade his armor with tech stolen from Doc Ock, which gives Superior Spider-Man a stake in this. So, great visuals, great action, nice humor, and Daredevil acting like this is one of his better friendships. He doesn't realize this is in Spider-Man. Like, by that point, they know who the other is in real life. Like, they're the world's finest on Marvel's side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, too, because I, I I got really excited about this episode, so I went and reread a bunch of Marvel Spider-Man and Daredevil team-ups, including this one, uh, in preparation. And there's some funny bits in there where, like, you know, Spider-Man's yelling from a lamppost. He's, like, calling out Matt Murdock, and he's yelling, Daredevil! And Matt's like, could you shut up? I'm still... Tr-. You know, I know it's, like, the worst-kept secret in New York, but could you not advertise that I'm Daredevil, please? Anyway, it was very funny. Mark Wade does a great job. It's a really great one. Really enjoyed that one. Okay, so our final feature, then, is... Is the bonus team up in which each of us proposes a perfect daredevil team up what do you have mine is so perfect i had to go back and look it wasn't already published because i like I, I could see the whole thing in my mind and i was thinking maybe they actually did this already because uh in my story billionaire dick grayson hires matt murdoch 
to help with a lawsuit in Bloodhaven against some shady company. And uh, it turns out that both Blockbuster and Kingpin have like a vested interest in this corrupt business. So we get team-ups of Dick Grayson and Matt Murdock, followed by like some sort of misunderstanding and a battle between Nightwing and Daredevil, which of course leads to a team-up. You get court battles, you get battles on the street, you get both main nemesis. And I, I think it's a great idea for a story, like so much so that I'm like, I think I've read this. You know, I'm picturing Scott McDaniel art. And I'm trying to piece it together because I mean, Scott McDaniel drew both characters. But uh, apparently I, that never happened. It's just in my head. Okay. Now, I, I mentioned to you before that Daredevil is kind of like Marvel's Batman, right? Well, I would say even more so is the flip of that is Nightwing is DC's Daredevil. Very much so. If you think about the two characters, you got acrobatics, you got leaping from rooftops, you got fighting sticks, you got swinging lines, you got peak physical, like human physique, you got really, really strong detective skills. You know, one is learned and one is from enhanced senses. You know, both lost parents or, or at least a father, tragically. Both have this really strong sense of justice and uh, they also have this really big sense of adventurous fun. So, I mean, in some ways, I feel like Nightwing. After when they evolved him, I feel like maybe they took some uh, some uh, guidance from Daredevil books. And if you look at covers, your basic Daredevil covers, your basic Nightwing covers, they're kind of the same aesthetic. Yeah? Yeah, totally. And if you think about it, the Nightwing book really came into its own under Scott McDaniel as the artist. Who was artist on Daredevil before. Exactly right. I, I went with Daredevil and uh, the boomerang-throwing Golden Age Daredevil. Mm. I mean, he's in the public domain. Right. So he's not going to cost us much. <laughs> I'd have him be a contemporary hero and go with the uh, original story of seeing his father killed, making him mute from a young age. So the blind hero and the mute hero at first clash when a confused eyewitness thinks they saw Daredevil and the media paints him as a new Daredevil. And by the end, the record is set straight and the new hero is called Death-Defying Devil. I think that's what they call him now. Uh, as per the Alex Ross series. So, so here's a crazy irony is... I was just recently attended an Alex Ross exhibition of art called Marvelocity, and they had original artwork by Alex Ross on display, including a page, like a Marvel tryout page, that he drew very early in his career of Matt Murdock Daredevil fighting the Golden Age Daredevil. So uh, you made an Alex Ross reference, and then I just happened to see this exact page. I I shared a picture with you because I snapped it while I was there. It's just really cool. So clearly, your idea was meant to be. Do we put it on the gallery? I say go for it. Feel free. All right. Well, I certainly didn't know it when I wrote the blurb, but it makes me glad I didn't switch to my runner-up, which is uh, Daredevil teams up with the son of Satan to represent him in a paternity suit against Mephisto. <laughs> That's good. I still throw that out there. All right. So it's that page, that your picture of the page will be in the gallery post. And I, I guess this is one of a rare instance where our bonus team up actually gets art attached. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now it's time for web zingers of our own, which is to say your feedback on our previous episode together, uh, in which we covered Marvel team up number 140 starring Spider-Man and the Black Widow. Let me start off here with Chris Franklin's message. He says, I've always been a sucker for the spider signal. So while I sometimes cherry picked Marvel Team Up based on the guest star, I had to get this one. If memory serves, Spidey continued to use the spider signal with his black costume, both the symbiote and the cloth version, despite it now being off-brand. And uh, Ron Friends penciled uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 251, so he was just redrawing the same scenes in fewer panels. Mm. Amazing to think many artists were still cranking out two books a month back then. 
Yeah, that's crazy. Sometimes more. Some of these guys were real workhorses. Mm. They were from Alan W. Wright, our buddy. says, excellent show, Shag and Siskoid. Uh, glad you're back to the team-up books as they were a staple of my youthful comic book purchases. More bang for your buck. He says, I didn't have this issue, although I definitely bought several issues in the Claremont run. You know, Alan, uh, after we finish this run, which will take us a while, uh, Claremont's run is the one I'm kind of zeroing in on. i got to convince the other guy on the other side of the microphone, but I... Convinced. <laughs> there we go. All right. Awesome. They were from Captain Entropy. It says, great first FW team up. He says, I didn't have this story, but enjoyed your recap and discussion of it. And I always liked it when Marvel heroes bucked the trend and collaborated like colleagues without any preliminary pugilism. Wow, that was hard to say. By the way, with nothing to go on but coincidence and supposition, I maintain that the other Black Widow Marvel team-up arc you mentioned, issues 82 to 85, was the inspiration for Gina Davis's vehicle, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Casting Samuel Jackson in the Spider-Man role was a bold but effective choice, in my opinion. That is interesting. I uh, I do like that movie quite a bit, and I hadn't thought about it as a Black Widow movie, but it's de- I used to refer to it as uh, one of the best female action movies I had seen at the time. I don't think I've seen it. Oh, it's good. It's good. All right. I'll put it on the list. But I never see movies. I never watch any movies. You never watch any ones I recommend. I freaking mailed you a... I did say freaking. Anyway, I freaking mailed you a DVD, and it took you like two years to watch it, if you ever even watched it. Also, I'm being facetious because I watch like 10 to 20 movies a week. Yes, I know. He does. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's look at Martin Gray here. He says, it's great to have FW team up back, and was a great way to begin your bold new direction. I sometimes forget how young some of the folk around here are. <laughs> But Shag, coming in less than a year from the end of the series, didn't half make me feel old. (laughs) This wasn't a favorite issue. I've never been a fan of street-level characters. Okay, that doesn't quite work with three people who zoom around the city on ropes and cables. Teaming up with street-level characters. Not enough contrast. This issue also could have done with a supervillain. It was disappointing that Marvel replaced Marvel Team-Up with Web of Spider-Man and Marvel 2-in-1 with The Thing. Who needs more solo books? Where are we going to see Wood God, Scarecrow, and uh, Wundar? (laughs) Well, Wundar did appear in Marvel 2-in-1, you know, a lot. Too much. Uh, Your comments on Black Widow's costume were interesting. It was definitely meant to be more gray. And if you look at it, when it was introduced in Frank Miller's Daredevil... Drawn and colored by Klaus Janssen, it seems to have a electrotone matrix, but soon it was often colored as if blue. Disappointing. Well, I'm sorry, Martin, if I'm too young for your liking. If it makes you feel any better, I have gone back and read a ton of the old Marvel team-ups, so I am a true blue lover of Stegron and Basilisk, so if that helps uh, prove my credentials. All right, then we heard from Jason Keen, who says, I am also a fan uh, that first met the Marvel Universe with the Bomber Jacket Avengers. Woohoo! Uh, as a result, I've always seen Natasha as an Avenger first and a spy second. The idea of her as a spy for me will always be tied to her being a villain who didn't fight and wore a dress and veil instead of the actual costume. I think the MCU won me over to loving her spy roots with the interrogation scene from the first Avengers film you mentioned. I've read most of the Black Widow miniseries over the past couple years, and the Soska sisters are one of my favorites. Uh, I've never read this issue before now, and I'm glad to see more of the character I would come to love than I would have thought for the first time. The cover is now rocketing up to the top of my don't-need-it-but-I'd-buy-it list. I love the spider signal. Awesome, Jason. I was really in the uh, minority there <laughs> with the spidey signal. You were complaining. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're out of line, sir. Get it together. 
Then we heard from Matt Soroyce, who says, Great episode. I'm looking forward to more. I'm very happy there's now a regular MTU feature at the Fire and Water Network. This was a very important title for me. When I began reading comics in the late 70s, Spider-Man was by far my favorite character, and Marvel Team-Up introduced me to a whole slew of Marvel superheroes. As the book moved into the early 80s, it was my favorite Spider-Man book because it wasn't bogged down in the continuity of Amazing Spider-Man or Peter Parker. Unfortunately, it was my favorite aspect of the book that led to its cancellation. Yeah, that is a bit heartbreaking. And then we have Ryan Daly, who says, I love hearing each of you talk about Daredevil, even if it's in the guise of a Spider-Man and Black Widow team-up. So you're in luck, Ryan. <laughs> he says, also, I covered the Amazing Spider-Man number 86, where Natasha traded in her old costume for the standard black Diana Rigg-inspired jumpsuit. It was on an episode of Power Fishnets that came out five years before this episode came out. To the day. Mm. Weird coincidence that I listened to this episode this morning before Facebook reminded me when that show originally dropped. Wow. Uh, also, on the Power of Fishnets feed, I uh, sat down with Ryan and we talked about Typhoid Mary, which we sort of segued into a discussion about Daredevil as well. So I remember that. Yep. Yeah. Then we heard from Tim Price who says, It's been way too long since I reread this issue of Marvel Team Up, so thank you for the excuse to revisit it. I was sorry that Black Widow didn't get much of this focus in the story, but her moments like knocking out three guys in one panel were excellent. It was very much a stealth three-way team-up with Daredevil, and that being the direction to continue into the next issue, and that was fine. Just not very widowy. Uh, he says, and I'm sure it'll surprise no one that I'm a fan of the Brown Jacket Avengers and loved Widow being a teen leader. Whoop, whoop. Let's hear it for us Brown Jacket Avengers fans. There's not many of us. <laughs> Tim Price. Then... <laughs> Of course. <laughs> then he says, in addition to the repeated scenes from Amazing Spider-Man 251, Ron Fenz was also the artist on both of these comics, and both stories prominently feature Spidey having to dive underwater to search vehicles. You know, here in the car for that gun, and Amazing Spider-Man to find Hopgoblin's body after the climactic battle. The similar denouement was diving was a wild coincidence. I knew I'd enjoy the new FW team up. Thanks, guys. Well, you're welcome, Tim. And the secret's out. We did it just for you, buddy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we got together and said, what can we do for Tim? Exactly. As we often discuss. I owed it to him for all the, the outsiders bashing. <laughs> I have to do a little something nice. Well, thanks for teaming up with me, Shag. I, dude, this was a blast. I am so thrilled we're doing this. We're two in. And these have been absolutely joyful because I get to talk about some of my favorite comics. I get to talk about Spider-Man. I get to talk about superheroes. And I don't have to edit it. So this is a real joy. Yeah, and I love to edit it. So <laughs> we win. We both win. Uh, are you working on anything? Are you editing anything for November? Like, Yeah, uh, we've got a Who's That coming up from the Who's Who podcast, which is going to be a little different than some of the others. I've got a Once Upon a Geek coming out. It's going to be about people in your neck of the woods, sir. A uh, little bit of Great White North superhero team called Alpha Flight, maybe. And then I've got some Justice League International on the on the docket as well. November's a busy month for me. Well, a reminder that we do have a Patreon, so if you like this content or want more like it, please think about making a monthly or one-time donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards. Check it out at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. This month, we are brought to team up with our sponsor, Alan W. Wright, The Bold Outlaw. We do enjoy reading your thoughts, and that the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page and find us on Twitter at FW Podcast. We'll read your comments on this issue when Shag is back with us. But next month, I'll be here with our friend Chris Franklin as we tackle Brave and the Bold, number 120. And on that, see you next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because after all, justice is a team effort. I'm sorry that I assumed the guy dressed as the devil was the bad one. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point.